Go ahead and take your Bible with me and turn to Psalm 120 this morning. Psalm 120, where we finished up Ruth last week, and now we're diving into 15 psalms over the course of the next 15 weeks. These are the Psalms of Ascent. Kellen has Bibles. He's passing them out. If you do need a copy of God's Word, he's got a couple more back there, and I'd be happy to, happy to give one to you. It's helpful to have the have the Bible, God's Word, in front of you when we talk about it, because I want you to know that I'm not just making things up, and we can see it together, and we can, we can reflect upon it together. Uh, there's three things that I want to do this morning. First is simply to, next Sunday, as you've heard for the last several Sundays, next Sunday we're going to be celebrating baptisms together. Um, so I want to just take a brief moment and talk about baptisms and what we believe about baptism, and what we say is true about baptism, and invite you, if you have not already, to, to consider with me baptism. The second thing I want to do this morning is to consider the Psalms of Ascent as a whole, as a whole. Hey, Abel, you can go. <laughs> consider the Psalms of Ascent as a whole. Um, just thinking a little bit about why they were written and what the purpose was and, and how we can learn from these 15 psalms before we dive in and consider all of them. Um, and then finally, we're going to take a few minutes and just consider Psalm 120 together. So that first piece that I want to talk about this morning is just baptism. What do we believe about baptism and why do we think it's important? Because we take it very seriously. We take baptism in our context very seriously. Um, Baptism is an important thing. We find it listed. Why do we say it's important? We find it listed and talked about right in the commission that Jesus gives to his, his disciples. Well, right before he ascends into heaven, he says to his disciples in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, he says, Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded to you. And then he tells his disciples that he's with them. He says, behold, look, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the commission to us as God's people, as those who identify as the local church, the commission to us is to go make disciples. And the way in which we make disciples is by baptizing and teaching them to observe all that we've commanded. Baptizing and teaching. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, 24, Mark even alluded to it. If he's, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Uh, this is a statement that Jesus makes and indicates. It comes before the Great Commission, but it indicates to us kind of the direction and the trajectory that Jesus is taking us. He's saying, if anyone would follow me, let him take up his cross, deny himself, and come after me. Jesus' statement tells us what it looks like to die to self and to self-interest and to serve and love God and serve and love our, our neighbor. Now, unfortunately, uh, in the world in which we live, sometimes we get this a little mixed up. So sometimes we view that, what Jesus says there, in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. We don't read that in light of what he says in Matthew chapter 16. Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And so we say it kind of becomes a 
Well, Jesus says, hey, when, we can, when you can squeeze me in, let's go ahead and get this done. It's sort of like Jesus is driving on the road and you get a phone call from him at 10.45 in the morning and says, hey, can you do lunch on my, my way to Fargo? That's not what Jesus is saying. This isn't a passing through town, throwing something out the window type activity, but an all of life type understanding. What does it mean to make disciples? It means to baptize and to instruct. And that means some pretty raw life on life, never um, allowing it to be far from our minds as we go about our day. It's not a, when I can squeeze you in mentality, it's a, it's an all of life mentality. We, as God's people, are entrusted to tell the world that the wrath of God has been absorbed by Jesus Christ. And not only that, but that we can have right relationship and spend eternity in his presence. That's what we've been entrusted to do, and that's what the Great Commission is about. It's not a squeeze-you-in-for-lunch message. It's an all-of-life message. And that's why baptism is a big deal to us, because in that moment, what we're doing is picturing what's already taken place inside of us. Mark talked about driving back on a motorcycle, and when you get going, you say, I can't turn back. There's no way I can turn back. And baptism is that picture. It's saying, there's no way now that I can turn back. Why is that picture? Because of what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 4. He says, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. When you're baptized, it means that you're saying, I've died to self and self-interest under the water. Died to self and self-interest. And you come up out of the water, you're raised to walk in newness of life and proclaim that one day I will spend eternity in the presence of God because Jesus defeated death. This is not an optional endeavor. Baptism is a practical picture of what's already taken place inside of you. Removal of sin, death to self and self-interest, the raising now that means walking in newness of life getting on the motorcycle and saying, I can't go back to that place of, from which I came. Baptism, again, does not save you. Rather, it lets everyone know that you have been saved and that you're committing to a life that reflects that internal transformation which is taking place and has taken place. We believe very strongly that baptism is meant to take place in the context of the local church. Uh, because it's the proclamation that you've been saved and that you're committing your life that reflects that internal transformation. But when you do that inside the context of the local church, and it's when it's observed by brothers and sisters in Christ, they can look at you and say, brother, sister, I saw you go under the water and proclaim that you have died to your old way of life, and now you have been raised up with Christ and are prepared to walk in newness of life and do all that God has commanded. Now, this is a challenge for us, and I get this. There are a lot of pastoral problems as I sit down and talk with people about baptism just because of the context in which we live, right? Our context, most people's understanding of what they would call baptism doesn't line up with what I've just said. That's my past also. Um, we, I grew up in a context that didn't affirm this view of, of baptism, 
But the reason we baptize believers, people who have trusted Jesus, is because we don't want anyone to think that you're gaining anything or gaining entry into God's presence through an act, but that it's by grace through faith that we've been saved. We don't get anything through it, but we proclaim what we have already gotten. And we're prepared to live a life that's in step with what we have been made. And so for some of you this morning, again, I just want to talk about this very briefly because it's such an important part of who we are and what we do. Um, For some of you, that, that means that baptism needs to be an ongoing conversation. We just need to engage in a conversation and talk about it and figure out, we'll come to terms a little bit. Um, for others of you, it needs to happen. Just plain and simple. As your pastor, I'm saying it needs to happen. You've been putting it off for a long time. And if that's you, you need to come forward. Mark Dever, a pastor that I read quite a bit, he said, he said this once. He said, getting what is the easiest command Jesus ever gave It gets a lot harder after that. Trust me, friends, some of you are doing a lot of the hard things that Jesus calls you to and haven't done the, what are the easier ones? Of course, baptism is more than getting wet, too. That's a little tongue-in-cheek, but maybe you've delayed in responding to the Holy Spirit speaking through the Apostle Peter in Acts 2. I think it's 38 when he says, repent and be baptized. Sometimes our culture takes what it means to be a Christian. How do we become a Christian, we ask. And we say, well, ask Jesus into your heart. (laughs) Peter, when he addresses a crowd of people who are mocking them after they had received the Spirit of Christ and saying, are these guys drunk? Peter gets up, he preaches this sermon, and he says to them, and he says, repent and be baptized. That's his call on their lives. Repent. And be baptized. And if that's you, and if you trusted Jesus and understand that baptism doesn't save you, but is rather a picture of what has taken place inside of you, and are prepared to show our church family and the world an outward picture, let's talk. Come talk with me. Or if you're thinking, I really don't understand what you're saying, that's fine too. Come talk to me. Like, let's have an open conversation about what this means. Um, I'm here. Let's talk. If you feel something stirring in you, don't suppress it. Don't suppress it. We say this. Don't, don't suppress it. Don't walk out of here wondering what happened. What happened this morning? What happened? What, what are we talking about? I don't even understand what's going on. Why are we even here? If, you, if, that, if any of that is a question that you have, come, come talk to me. Let's have an open conversation. I would love to talk with you. So I wanted to say that before we got to next Sunday because next Sunday we're going to be celebrating baptisms at the reservoir after we worship together. We're going to go out there and then we'll come back here and eat together. It'll be good. It'll be a celebration. Um, So keep that in mind. Um, Let's be be open. Let's let's have a conversation about this. Genuinely, genuinely, let's, let's do that. Okay, take your Bible. Look at Psalm 120 with me. I'm actually going to read this in a minute, but have it in front of you because there's a couple things that I'm going to point out right out of the gate. Psalm 120, the Psalms of Ascent, this is the first of 15 Psalms of Ascent. Psalm 120 through Psalm 134, mark those out. 
So we're going to take 15 weeks. These are kind of standalone, but they all kind of have that tag. You'll see there, Psalms of, att- of Ascent, um, or a Song of Ascents, maybe your Bible says, or it might say something similar to that. Um, the, sometimes these 15 Psalms are referred to as the Psalter, within the Psalter. Now, if you don't know that word, that's okay. A Psalter is like a songbook. It's a book of songs or prayers. Kind of like a hymnal. You'd have a hymnal. You'd know what those are. And earlier I said turn to the book of Psalms, but what I really should have said, I'm not going to do this, but what I really should have said is turn to the Psalter um, because Psalms describe what's contained in the Psalter. Psalms describe what's contained in the Psalter. It's not a book like Ephesians that was written to a group of people who were called the Ephesians. Ephesians doesn't contain a bunch of Ephesians. You get what I'm saying. So we say that the Psalter is made up of psalms. Now as we approach the psalms, you'll see something here at the beginning of each. If you're reading, I I mentioned that tag, right? The Song of Ascents or the Psalm of Ascents. You'll see right before that in your Bible, most Bibles, you'll see right before that in Bible, you see a heading. Now that heading is a helpful tool that your translator has placed there or your compiler That is not inspired. That is not given to you by God. But the tag right below it, a song of ascents, is given to you by God and is there to help you understand who authored it and how maybe potentially you should be considering this particular text. That heading here says, Deliver me, O Lord. They just plucked that from, if you're reading the ESV at least, and they just plucked that from verse 2. Deliver me, O Lord from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. So that tag then we see underneath that is, says, a song of ascents. So what is a psalm or a song of ascents? Well, there are a few options that are possible, um, things that have been passed down in understanding. Some were, say that they were sung, each one of these 15. There were 15 steps leading up to the temple, and as the Jews would go to worship, they would, they would sing one on each step. Okay. Um, others said they were sung when they returned from exile. And the command to return to Jerusalem in the book of Ezra says, Go up to Jerusalem. Go up to Jerusalem, and so going up is ascending into something. There are a couple other possibilities here, and there are a couple other problems that people throw out. None of, nothing is given to us in Scripture exactly what, what we should believe about why it says Psalms of Ascent. So the question maybe then we should ask of this is, how should we approach these? There's obviously some similarities here between Psalm 120, Psalm 121, 22, and all the way through Psalm 134 to garner, to get this tag, Song of Ascents. So how should we approach these then? What, what should we keep in mind as we read through these and consider them on a deeper level? Um, I think one thing that needs to be considered it's just the simple idea that we're going up to worship God. That those who would have sung these were going up in one sense, in one way or another, going up to worship God. In, in ancient Israel, that meant going up to the temple to worship. And it meant going up in kind of three different ways. It meant going up 
corporately together as God's people. They were going up to the temple or personally. Uh, it meant going up and preparing the preparation of one's heart and going up to the temple. And finally, it meant geographically. As you approached Jerusalem from every side, you were going up towards the holy city. So we see those three things, corporately, personally, geographically. And I think immediately that has some implications for us as God's people. I love the way that Eugene Peterson says it. He describes it this way. Jerusalem was the highest city geographically in Palestine. And so all who traveled there spent much of their time ascending. But the ascent was not only literal, it was also a metaphor. The trip to Jerusalem acted out a life lived upward towards God in an existence that advanced from one level to another in developing maturity. What Paul describes as, in Philippians 3.14, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now this sounds a lot like what we talk about when we talk about discipleship. Discipleship in many ways is growing in Christian maturity, understanding and knowing who our God is and developing it and, and then speaking that truth and doing it together corporately and worshiping God in a context like this. We might have maybe lost that geographical element, but we certainly can identify with the, the togetherness and the, the personal preparation of the heart that is intended to come through and shine through in these psalms. So, as people now who consider ourselves the people of God, but who don't reside in ancient Israel, um, when we're not going up to a holy city for a festival or a return from exile, we must, though, understand and recognize that all of life, everything that we do, there's this ongoing recognition of life as worship. Our worship isn't confined to a building. Our worship isn't confined to the exchequer room on Sunday morning. That's an idea that we need to move beyond. Worship isn't confined to a space. Why do we say that? Because the Bible says it acts... Chapter 7, verse 48, God does not dwell, or the Most High does not dwell in houses made with hands. God doesn't live in this room or any other church in Jamestown or cathedral or anything like that. Blaze preached a few weeks ago from 1 Peter, and verse Peter chapter 2, verse 5 says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. So the people of God then become God's dwelling place, not a physical location. Not a time, but the people of God. So whether we're together here in the Exchequer Room, or we meet in an airport, or we meet in a cathedral, or we meet in the pick-a-place, it doesn't matter. And so the logical conclusion, if we are God's people and God's presence dwells within us, then the logical conclusion is, again, what we've said, that the worship is not limited to a space. And Paul says that very thing in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is what? Which is your spiritual worship. 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The idea here is presenting yourself, your whole self, to God in worship. That's not limited to Sunday and even some, some places, a subset of Sunday, which is the music. It's not limited to those things, but we're ascending to worship with all of our lives. Again, verse 2 in that Romans passage, is it behind me? It is behind me. The verse 2 starts with, do not be conformed, right? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that gives us insight into what a living sacrifice looks like. What does it mean to worship God with all of my life, we say? And we say, it is to not be conformed to the things of this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, that seems like an ethereal thought. What does that actually mean? How does that practically work itself out in my day-to-day? Because I, I don't get that. What does it mean? Not conformed but transformed. And if we've gone up to worship God, not in a house made with hands, but with our whole life, all of us is raised and elevated to worship, then we have to ask the question, what does it mean to not be conformed to this world, but what does it mean to be transformed by the renewal of your mind? Does it mean emotional engagement? Yes, but not exclusively. Although it does include your emotions, we see emotions shine through. We're going to see it here in the psalm, the Psalm 120 that we're going to look at this morning. But worship also includes the physical. Worship also includes the intellect. It includes the affections. It's working to answer the question, here it is. How do I not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of my mind? Ask yourself this question, what do I love and what do I desire? More than anything, what do I love and what do I desire? And, and maybe, maybe you're thinking, maybe you're here this morning, you're thinking to yourself, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't quite, I'm not wrapping my mind around, around this idea of life as worship, but if that is true, if every waking moment is, is worship, and it isn't confined to a Sunday morning. What does that actually mean? I, th- I think I would ask the question of you to consider, how is my life or- ordered? How do I order my life? What do I order my life around? Or what do I orient my life around? I like that word orient. So you're going to use that word orient. What do I orient my life around? Orientation is the determination of the relative position of something or someone to something or something else, or someone else. And we worship requires ourselves to ask the question, what is my relative position to God? Is it far? I then must take steps to draw near to Him. This is psalmic language. I must take steps to draw near to him. Or I think it may be better described as that fits our culture a little more is what am I hungry for? What am I hungry for? What What do I desire? What do I long for? What do I think will be my satisfaction? And then how do I, how do I get that thing? Is my hunger for God himself? Is my hunger for God himself. 
we think about this concept. For some reason, the Facebook ad algorithm thingy like wants me to be, I don't know, it, it's like put me in this category. I, maybe I'm there, I don't know. But it's always given me these ads about um, make lots of money online. And I'm not quite sure why it does that, but one word that typically gets used in those Facebook ads is stay hungry, right? Stay hungry. I don't know if that's like an entrepreneurial term or whatever, but stay hungry. It's always telling me to stay hungry. What am I staying hungry for? That's the question. What am I staying hungry for? Am I hungry for a Snickers? Am I hungry for, and in that instance, it wants me to say I'm hungry for money, But the reality is what Scripture teaches us and what we can learn from the Psalms of Ascent is that we must stay hungry for God. Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good, right? Taste Him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And the problem is when we're hungry or order our lives around something other than God Himself, when we're hungry for something other than God Himself, what we wind up doing is engaging in worship of that thing. We wind up engaging in worship of money or our work or our family, which are all good gifts from God, but terrible gods in and of themselves. It's what I've placed at the pinnacle of my life and what I hope to ascend to. And the Psalms of Ascent say, ascend to your God. He's the greatest, most soul-satisfying thing that you can have. What have I placed at the pinnacle of my life and what am I working towards and moving towards? And friends, that determines what we worship. And if that's the case, my life is down low. If, If I'm worshiping things other than God himself, I'm hungry for things other than God himself, then my life is actually down low and I'm not actually ascending in the way that the psalm says I'm being conformed to the world. Because the world says, order your life around making money. The world says, order your life around, you name it, whatever it is, other than God himself. That's not transformation by the renewal of our mind. Because why? Because what I think to be the pinnacle of my ascent is very low. I have all that's necessary to climb Mount Everest, but I'm content to sit on a bunny hill. Worship is an ascent. And when I say that, it's not a weird, mystical kind of thing. It's not like ascend to a higher plane or whatever that mumbo-jumbo is. What I'm talking about is ascending to order your life around God himself. And ask the question, what am I hungry for? What what is the direction of all my life? And as a worshiper, we must say, towards God. What is the direction of my life towards God? And... As a worshiper, we must ask, what am I hungry for? And we must say, for God. And if that's our direction, then we're climbing Everest and we're not content with bunny hills. So, if none of that made any sense to you, that's okay, because we're going to spend 15 weeks talking about the Psalms of Ascent and those ideas are going to be just all over. Just These texts are going to be dripping with those ideas. So I wanted to give you all of that up front and kind of give it all to you up front. I almost said vomit it all on you up front, but I didn't. That, that was just the wrong picture. 
I wanted to give it to you all up front so that you have it, so it's resting on your head and say, I didn't understand that, but over the course of the next 15 weeks, God, would you cause that to be a reality in my own heart? What does it mean to order my life around who God is? What does it mean to be hungry for God? What does it mean to taste and see that the Lord is good? And I think that the Psalms of Ascent are going to help us get to that point. So, Psalm 120, let me read this for us this morning. We're just going to take a few minutes and talk about this psalm, and hopefully you'll see some of those ideas contained here. Um, in Psalm 120. Psalm 120, a song of ascents. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach and dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I, who are, too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, but when I speak, they are for war. This psalm is a psalm of lament. It's a psalm of lament of sadness. Or despair, we see that, right? We see the emotions that the psalmist is, is embedded in, right? In the first words, right? He says, in my distress. He's distressed. The psalmist describes for us what he's feeling. He's anxious. He's sorrowful. He's in pain. There's turmoil inside of him. And so we read those first three words and we say, in my distress. And we say, what are you distressed about? But even before we get there, he says something incredible. He says, I called to the Lord. I called to the Lord. And what? And he answered me. God responds. He answers him. Now the strange thing about that phrase is that actually he doesn't really unpack that for us. What does it look like that he called to the Lord and that he answered him? Now we can assume from verse 2 that deliverance has come, but the rest of the psalm isn't about the deliverance that God offers, but about the uh, sheer emotion that's contained within the psalmist's situation. God answers this prayer for deliverance, and we don't know how, but he does. So this psalm is, again, more about the situation. It's more about what's going on around him. And the psalmist finds himself in and was pleading with God to intervene about. Look at the second half of verse 2. He says, Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. And verses 3 and 4 actually kind of like personify that deceitful tongue. He's a talking to it. What shall be given to you? And what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? And he warns that person to whom the deceitful tongue is connected. A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. That's a picture of God's judgment. I don't know if you know what a broom tree is, but in the ancient world, a broom tree is a tree that would burn for a very long time and make some really hot coals. We know what warrior's sharp arrows are, but the broom tree, right? God's judgment coming their direction because of their deceitful tongues. And then in verse 5, he gives us this picture of the physical location. He says, Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech. 
that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Now those two locations are like a long ways apart. So we could probably take this to be something a little bit less specific and a little bit more uh, uh, figurative in the way that he's talking. The psalmist probably wasn't in Meshach and then Kedar. He's using these two examples to describe the spread outness of God's people. He's in a place that he doesn't want to be. He's in an undesirable place. The psalmist probably understood these two terms to be a blanket for the people of God who have been displaced. And that's confirmed in verses 6 and 7, right? He says, Too long I have my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. They don't value the things that he values. The things that are uh, around him don't share the same, the same values. They're opposed to what the people of God are about. So immediately we can see a few things that we learn from this psalm. And we can talk about and frame them kind of in the context of worship is all of life. Right? There is an external type of understanding that is taking place in us that, that we need to be working this out. And there are, in some sense, people and places that are hostile towards working out what it means to be part of the people of God. This is where the psalmist finds himself. And it's funny that the Psalter, within the Psalter, the Songs of Ascent, start here because it gives us a picture of and a contrast for how oftentimes we think and we, we live. There are deceitful tongues. There are lying lips that come around us and are part of our world every single day. So what do we learn from this? What do we think about this? And I think first thing that I point out immediately as we see this, we look at verses 1 and 2, we see a high confidence in the psalmist in taking his matters to God in prayer. Right? We say, in his distress, and immediately we say, what's your distress, O psalmist? And he says, I call to the Lord. That's the most important thing for the psalmist. That he communicates that, what is he going to do in this moment? He's going to call upon the Lord first and foremost. He's going to take his moment of distress to God in prayer, and he receives an answer from God swiftly. Secondly, we learn that we can, as the people of God, expect again to be on the receiving end of lying lips and deceitful tongue. I love what Calvin writes. He writes this. He says, we see that slanderous tongues do not spare even the Son of God, a consideration which should induce us to bear the more, pa- more patiently our condition when the wicked traduce us undeservedly. Now we must make the distinction, we're not simply talking about any type of slander. We're talking about the slander that comes as a result of a gospel proclamation. We're talking about speaking the truth of who God is to a world that is hostile to that truth. And we're talking about being slandered according to those things. That's what the psalmist is talking about. He is for peace, but the world... And the people around him are for war. Friends, as Christians, as those who have followed Jesus, we are for peace. We are for peace. There is only one way to understand and know peace in the world in which we live. 
there's only one way to experience true peace, and that's through knowing Jesus Christ. There is no other way. And people may say to you, I am for peace, but in reality, outside of the truth of what God has done for them in Jesus Christ, they can't know it. They can't know it. The world despises the people of God when they live according to the things of God. The world is embedded in their comparisons. Those people are so judgmental, they say. They talk about the church. They say those people are so judgmental. They're such hypocrites. And as the people of God living according to God's word, we absolutely know and acknowledge that we are too often judgmental and hypocritical. The world doesn't hate hypocrites. They just hate hypocrites that they don't that don't know they're hypocrites. Right? So we, as the body of Christ, say, no, we are total hypocrites. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We will walk out of this place and do something because of the body of flesh in which we inhabit. We will walk out of this place and do something that is not in line with what God has told us or commanded us in his word. And then we go to him. We're just, we're just admitting. We're saying, yeah, no, I am that. I am that. I am going to wrong you, friend. I am going to hurt you. Your hope isn't in me not hurting you. Your hope is in Jesus Christ. And so we openly acknowledge our sinful tendencies. And we say, I don't know, Buffalo City Church. We have nothing to offer someone who doesn't have a sin problem. We don't. As we say, the only thing that we can offer you is the truth of who God is and what he's done for you in Jesus Christ. And if you don't have a sin problem, then I I don't know what we're doing here. We offer the good news. The good news is that there is a way to have relationship restored with God despite your sin and sinfulness. And that way is to Jesus, but that assumes that that was broken. And it was broken and you were responsible for its brokenness. And so if you professed Christ, that you're being made more into the image of Jesus, and there is still a war that's going on inside of you that you're engaged in against sin, there's a battle to do. And Jesus says, we talked about it when we talked about the Sermon on the Mount, I don't know, a year ago maybe? Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, two implications here. And the third, first we see a high confidence of the psalmist in taking his matters to God in prayer. Secondly, we can learn that as the people of God, we can expect to be slandered or to be on the receiving end of deceit. And third and finally, we are displaced people. That's what makes this all so relevant and purposeful for us. We are displaced people. The psalmist says, Meshach and Kedar, we are not home. We are not home. We are sojourners and exiles in a foreign land. Our home is in heaven. Jesus says he's gone to prepare a place for us there. And that's what we look forward to, the day when we will be there with him. So those three things, and then we ask, so what? What, do we, what does that mean? What does it mean for us? And especially as we now move and think about the Lord's table. A few questions to consider, maybe, when thinking about this psalm. 
In distress, what is your first inclination? Or in any emotion, what is your first inclination? The psalmist example gives us here is to pray. To pray in any emotion. For me, I'm going to say this, and for many of us, prayer is a negative action. Not like it's a bad action, but it only happens when negative things are going on. It only, go, it only happens when negative things are, or bad things are happening around us. We only ask for prayer when the bad stuff is happening or go to prayer in our distress. But we see that prayer is a vital activity, yes, in our distress, but in all of our life, in our joy, in our melancholy, in our excitement. We are dependent on God for all things. We say that to be true. For all things, we are dependent on God. Not just getting through life's problems. So that's the first question. In your, is your first inclination in distress or any emotion to pray? Secondly, what is your response to slander and deceit? What is your response to slander or deceit? The psalmist shows us the proper response. Again, it's prayer, but then we see a movement away from that, an acknowledgement that God is judge and is in control, and then a verbalization of the desire of the things uh, that God desires. And I think that there is a challenge embedded here. Um, <laughs> this may sound crazy. This may sound crazy, but, but I'm going to propose it anyways. I don't think that followers of Jesus are being slandered enough on behalf of Christ, at least in our context. And we say, how, how can you say that? How, how can you say that? Our culture is hostile towards Christianity. It is, but what kind of Christianity? There's a lot of noise in the news and angry people on social media who oppose Christianity, but they seem to be more opposed to a system of thought or a political position than they are to the actual name of Jesus, because rarely in a social media article do you get the gospel. So, I would say that what is your response to slander and deceit but then also ask yourself the question if the hostility you feel is because you've pro boldly proclaimed the gospel or something else. If it's something else, we need to change. We need to think, how can I proclaim the gospel boldly? Lying lips and a deceitful tongue are the oldest challenges known to man. This is exactly what happens in the garden with Adam and Eve when the serpent shows up. Lying lips, deceitful tongue, say to Adam and Eve, why would, did God really say that to you? Slander and deceit are coming. Respond like the psalmist does in here. Prayer and acknowledgement that God is, in ju is judge and in control and a verbalization of a desire of the things that God desires. And then the final question I would ask, that I would have you ask yourself this week is, where is your home? Where is your home? The psalmist recognizes again in verses 6 and 7. Too long have I had my dwelling among those people who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. 
the word peace here means much more than just peace. We think about peace, we think about peace and quiet, but the reality is this word in the Old Testament means so much more. So much of what it meant to be an Israelite or live in ancient Israel was wrapped up in this word. So much that the word would be a common greeting that people would give to one another, uh, either when they were meeting someone for the first time or departing on a long journey. Um, when you're a foreigner or a sojourner, often that means that the people around you don't value the same things that you value. Friends, we say that that is absolutely true. If we are followers of Jesus and we value the truth of the gospel and living according to all that he commands us, the world will be hostile, slanderous in our direction. We can expect that. The word peace here means more, again, than just peace. It means harmony, wholeness, completeness, prosperity, wealth, welfare, tranquility, and probably a lot more. But the reality is that we acknowledge and understand that the only way to have any of that is through Jesus Christ. If we value Christ and he, that he, say that He is all-satisfying, certainly peace is not completely available to us in the world in which we live because the world would rather have war. But if something better is coming, like the psalmist, we find ourselves in this undesirable place, this world, the sin that redirects our affections off the king of the universe and onto temporal material and onto ourselves where lips lie and tongues deceive. But through Jesus Christ and his perfect sacrifice and his death-defying resurrection, we can be certain that the undesirable place we find ourselves in will quickly be shed will quickly be shed for an eternity spent in his presence with our greatest treasure, God himself. And so that's what's going to take us. That's what's going to carry us to the Lord's table this morning. The understanding that we are for peace, friends. If you're in Christ, you are for peace, but that means telling a world that is hostile towards it the truth about who Jesus is. And so as we look at the Lord's table, we see this morning, we see a world. This is a picture of the hostility of the world expressed against Jesus Christ. The hostility of the world that resulted in a broken body, which the bread represents, and shed blood, which the juice represents. Jesus shed his blood so that we could have forgiveness of sins. His body was broken so that we could stand before a holy God and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what this table is about. So as we go here this morning, we say that this is something that is for believers, much like we talked about baptism and we said baptism is for those who have trusted Jesus. It's the only way to get back to God. We say the same thing about the Lord's Supper. These are two things that we regularly engage in as a body, baptism and the Lord's Supper, because they point us more directly to the truth of the gospel and because Jesus commanded us to do them. He instituted this in the, at the Last Supper. He looked at his disciples and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He said, this is my blood shed on your behalf. A new covenant he gave to us in it. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. Paul adds then that this proclaims the Lord's death until he returns. We are proclaiming this morning the Lord's death until he returns and that we've participated in that death. But then one day we will feast with him. We will spend eternity in his presence at table with him and enjoy him forever. That's what this is about. 
That's why this is for believers. So this morning, if you're in Christ, if you've trusted Jesus, then, then please come participate. Come up here, take the bread, acknowledge his broken body, take the juice, acknowledge his shed blood. I'll invite you to come forward to grab these things, these elements in a moment, and Mark will play, and we'll, we'll finish up the morning in worship. If you're not sure what it looks like to be a Christian, if you're not sure, like the things that I've spoken this morning, again, don't make any kind of sense to you, please just refrain from the table. The Bible's very clear. We don't want you to eat or drink judgment upon yourself. The Bible's very clear that this is for those who have given their lives and are following Jesus actively in their day-to-day. So just go ahead and skip out. Let it pass. It's okay. Um, if you need to talk, we would love to talk with you. Parents of young children, too, there are some young children in here. I would say exercise discretion on their behalf. If they've made a profession of faith and thrown the fruit of repentance in their life, by all means, invite them to participate with you as their parent. But if you're not sure and aren't really quite understanding yet of what that means, go ahead and just use it as an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Picture of the gospel that's here. What does this look like? I'm going to stop talking now. We're going to go to the table. Remember these things. I'm going to pray. Mark is going to, and when you're prepared in your heart to come up and receive the elements, by all means, do so.